Okay, this morning is Sunday, December 11th. Our message this morning is called The Anvil and the Hammer. The Anvil and the Hammer. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew. But it's going to be a moment before I get to Matthew. I want to read you something about an anvil and a hammer. Everybody have a difficult week this week, or was I the only one? I'm the only one. I found out that this kingdom life is not always what preachers say. You know, if truth be told, <laughs> if you'd been told when you enter the kingdom there's going to be hardship, there's going to be difficulties, your whole life long your flesh will want to do something that you're not allowed by God to do, I bet that message would not build the biggest cathedrals in the world. But that's exactly what we were called to. Salvation is a free gift from God, but it costs you everything. In other words, your whole life becomes God's at that point. You don't have the right to do what you want to do anymore. I want to read you something I took from Philip Schaff's History of the Church. And this morning's going to be a little unorthodox. There are several things that I'm going to read you, and I hope that would be all right with you. In January of 1562, in France, a man named Biza spoke for the Protestant Huguenots concerning the Edict of January which was supposed to ensure that Protestants had some civil rights while living in the dominion of their Catholic aristocracy and monarchy. Biza urged his fellow Protestants to accept the edict, although it promised only very limited rights, and they obeyed. On January 27, 1562, Biza was in St. Germain by the command of Catherine to argue with the Catholic theologians concerning the use of images and the worship of saints. This meeting did little to bring unity. In fact, further... It revealed the enormous gulf between Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics. The conference did no good except to show that Protestants had some biblical reasoning at all events for their opinions as opposed to their counterparts. While the Protestants acknowledged the gulf, they did entertain hopes of maintaining the peace. When the news that the Duke of Guise had massacred hundreds of defenseless, defenseless Protestants engaged in peaceful worship, began to spread far and wide, a court was set in Monceau. And there Bizo appeared as the deputy of the Protestants of Paris to demand of King Navarre punishment for this odious violation of the Edict of January. Catch you up here. This Edict of January was supposed to bring peace. Civil war broke out for religious reasons in France. Those that protested the uh, Roman Catholic rule in the area were called Protestants. And those that adhered to Roman Catholic rule were loyal to the Catholic Church, and they fought. That's sad. It's still going on in Ireland in that same respect. And this edict was issued that said that they were going to be tolerant of each other's religious views. But one particular lord over an area actually burned a barn with uh, lots of Protestants in it who were worshiping. Okay? And it, I'm sure either side could point to something nasty. But Beza's response is what I'm getting to this morning. The Queen Mother received the demand graciously and promised compliance. But the King responded roughly and laid all the blame on the Protestants, who he declared had excited the attack by throwing stones at the Duke of Guise. Well then, said Beza, y'all following me so far? Beza's standing there. He's asking for mercy, asking for the King to enforce this edict. And the King says, no. It was really those people's fault. They must have been throwing stones at the Duke of Guise. Beza responds, He should have punished only those who did the throwing. And then he added these memorable words, Sire, truly the church of God aims to endure blows and not strike them. 
But also may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Saints, I want to remind you this morning, no matter what people fire in your direction, the church is something that is an anvil. It wears out hammers. Our job is never to respond blow for blow. Your job is to sit back, receive, and let God sort it out. In life, the biggest temptation that you'll ever have is to be the hammer instead of the anvil. What you want to do when somebody smacks you across the face is smack them back. And what you're required to do is what the Word of God says. Remember this one thing and then we'll move on from this. Hammers, they get worn down and eventually worn out. But the anvil endures forever. Long after that hammer's gone, the anvil will be there. That's the role of a Christian. The role of a Christian is to be an immovable object. Somebody that can smile in the face of adversity. That can love somebody who's trying to hurt them. And why can you do that? Because you realize they just don't know what they're doing. Jesus cried out on a cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen cried out something very similar while they were throwing rocks at him that tore his flesh to the point where he died. Now, I doubt anybody in here has been crucified or stoned, but I bet you've had somebody say things about you that weren't true at some point in your life. bet you had somebody accuse you of false motives at some point in your life. You get to choose in that very moment, will you react like Christ or will you react like a hammer? I choose to be the anvil. That didn't mean that I always get that right. Those are the ideals that we shoot for. Proverbs 12:19, something that I want to read you. You tuck this away in your heart. The Bible says when Mary heard about this calling on Jesus' life, she treasured it in her heart. In other words, the whole time she was growing up, she didn't un- he was growing up, she didn't understand necessarily what was happening, but she treasured the things that had been said about him in her heart. Proverbs 12:19 says, "Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment." Whatever is said that is not true, Guys, you don't have to defend anything. All you have to do is let the test of time stand and it'll fade away. Now, this goes for you if you speak falsehoods as well. Anybody in here ever been trapped into... I say trapped. Ever entered into a situation where you said something that wasn't true? Maybe because you just weren't strong enough to say the truth? I've been there. I've said things that I wished I hadn't said or not said something that I wished I had said. Nobody in here this morning as we approach this message should approach it from the standpoint of I'm holy and everybody else is not. The truth is, all of us have been the hammer at times instead of the anvil. Both play their role and God's working in both areas. As some of the events of my life in the last few months, really, and uh, those of you that know me closely know, I wrote a paper here recently. It was tw- over 26,000 words and it had to do with the believer's relationship to the law. It's funny, some embraced that paper and loved it and thought, wow, this is enlivening. Others outright called it heresy. Now, they meant well. They're trying to defend what they believe God has shown them. But that was hurtful. You know, that's hard to hear in that realm. Later in life, my employment situation's gotten kind of crazy. Everybody means well, but it's hurtful. Those things happen in life. There's nothing that you can do about that. How we respond to them is something that we get to choose what we do. And I realized something. I said, Lord... I'm confused. I'm just trying to do your will here. All I want to do is, is love you. And I'm getting attacked from every side and I don't understand why. And it's like he slapped me across the face and said, Hey, stupid, what have you been preaching about? Now, God may not talk to you like that, and I understand that, but to me it's, Hey, stupid. I want to read to you some sermon titles, okay? Now, I, I need to tell you something else uh, about this. I don't 
keep sermons on a card catalog. You know, I don't go pull a sermon out of a file index by date. I pretty much read and pray all week, wake up Sunday morning and decide what I'm going to preach Sunday morning. Sometimes I haven't decided by the time we get through worship. So there is absolutely zero hope of Eric and the natural having arranged these messages for this point. But I believe God's hand was in it. Watch this. Nine weeks ago, and we could start further back than that, but I don't want to bore you. Nine weeks ago, I'm going to start nine weeks ago, read you some sermon titles as we go forward. Nine weeks ago was instruction and obstruction. Those of you that were here will remember that message is, you listen to God's instruction and let Him worry about the obstructions that are in your life. Don't take things into your own hands. You listen to what He says to do and don't worry about what stands in your path. Week eight, one life changed. This was the anthem of our ministry. One Life Changed was a message that was based on Acts 16 that says you need to be willing to be chained to your calling. For the benefit of others, you need to be willing to be in prison, just like Paul and Silas were. That while you're in a dark place, you can sing praises and the other prisoners will hear it and get set free. That was that message. Watch the next one. In Over Your Head. This was the week Diana was baptized. This entire message... It's about being in trouble beyond your ability to get out and how God has to put every human being in a place where you're in over your head so that you will cry out to Father for help, whether lost or saved. This is a process we go through. Next week, wisdom and understanding for the nations. This entire message was based on Deuteronomy. God chose the nation Israel and He said, I have chosen you and I have given you my law so that you will live according to my law and the nations around you will see that you have wisdom and understanding that's beyond your own ability. Boy, isn't that interesting. Next week, break it open. This came out of the book of Micah where the prophecy went forth that said, I will send one before you to break open the way where there is no way and the king shall lead his sheep through himself. That's a paraphrase. In other words, Christians find themselves hemmed in not knowing where to go, but God will send somebody to make a way where there is no way. Boy, isn't that interesting. What came after the week of Break It Open? Dangerous. Dangerous was a message where we taught about when you're trying to advance the kingdom, when you're breaking open a way where there is no way, the enemy will attack you. You have no choice. You've become dangerous to him. When you're trying to do something good for God, there is an enemy. His name is Satan, and it means opposition. He will oppose you. Now, what's funny about that is Satan doesn't appear in the natural. He doesn't show up in the flesh with a pointy little tail and pitchfork. The Bible teaches that each of us, when we do what our desires are, rather than God's desire, become an instrument of the enemy. This is how Peter can be standing before Jesus and receive praise one moment for hearing from God, and the next moment Jesus can look at him and say, Get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. This is a point worth remembering here before I go any further. When you face opposition, you need to remember, not the people that are there. Everybody's trying to do what's right, for the most part. There are some wicked people in this world, but most of the time, the people that you run into are doing what they think is right or what they've convinced themselves is right. It's the enemy who is trying to influence them to oppose you, not them. This means you can have mercy on the person and pray against the enemy. Does that make sense? Watch the next week. The measure of a man. The measure of a man was a message where we taught the way you measure somebody's worth in the kingdom, their maturity in the kingdom, whether or not they are a man in the kingdom, is how they endure trials. That the measure of a man was not their wealth, was not their dominion over other men, or their prowess with women. The measure of a man was what have you endured for Christ. And we looked at how Paul stacked up to that measure. This man 
endured greatly for the kingdom. And so we all love him. We consider him a man among men in the kingdom. The next week was risk assessment. In the kingdom of God, we cannot make our decisions based on the consequences. We cannot look any longer and say, well, Lord, you want me to do this, but if I do that, this will happen. You gave up that right the moment you called Him Lord, which means owner and controller. It means you do what He says, when He says, to the best of your ability, to hell with the consequences. Let Him worry about that. Boy, I should have listened to that one. <laughs> then last week was Moshe lessons. Moshe is the Hebrew way to say Moses. Moses was a man who was strong, educated in all the universities of Egypt, physically strong, mentally strong, a capable leader. Sees an injustice, he runs right out, takes it into his own hands and kills an Egyptian. In my life, every time I've gotten in trouble, it's because I've taken something into my own hands, my own abilities. There's still a little Egyptian killer in me that I wish wasn't there. But after God worked with Moses for a while, after he spent time talking to him at a burning bush, teaching him through the maturing process of life, when Moses was 40, he killed the Egyptian. When he was 80, he was ready to begin the deliverance of Israel, but it required something. Him to stand barefoot before God. No pride left. No strength of his own abilities left saying, Lord, I'll do only what you want me to do and I'll only do it if you tell me to do. That's where we're all hoping to be. Stripped of your own abilities so that you can take on the presence and power of God to do what He tells you to do. I'm trying. I'm still in process. Some of you probably have arrived, but Matt, no? No, not yet. We hope to get there. Well, then it's no surprise, and I could look back with comfort upon this. I was sitting in Starbucks this morning, I, you know, I couldn't help it. I called Mandy, called a couple of friends. Hey, look, look at these messages that God's given us. Look at this, how God... It's no surprise that there's troubles. It's no surprise. This is what we're built for. God has raised up Christians that He can put in a dark place, in a difficult place, so everybody can look and see if they can still keep a smile on their face. Jesus said, a city on a hilltop can't be hidden. He told us to let our light shine before men. Friends, never is light so evident than if you're in a dark place. And if you want to let somebody know that you really love them, let them wrong you really good and love them anyway. Then that's proof beyond proof. See, if you only love those that love you, how are you any better than the tax collectors, Jesus said. So anyway, that was what was on my mind. And I began to look at this idea where Basil looks at this French monarch and says, Hey, man. The church aims to receive a blow without striking a blow. But you need to remember something. The church is also an anvil that's worn out many hammers. This is why we pray for those that don't understand how this works. You pray for mercy. You pray for revelation. Because the truth is, those that find themselves opposing God's will, whatever God's will is, and I've been in that category in my life several times, without meaning to, opposing God's will, will wear themselves out. Because when God wants to accomplish something, He'll keep working at it until it's done. Do you remember Gamaliel's speech talking about Christianity? Gamaliel in the book of Acts says, Hey, brothers, look, this guy was not a Christian. He's a Jew. And he's warning the Jews who are persecuting the Christians. He says, If this is not of God, it'll just fade away. My advice to you is leave it alone. Because if you keep pursuing it, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. What a wise thing. found out that Gamaliel was in the house of Hillel who taught Paul. He was Paul's teacher. Gamaliel's student, Paul, became the greatest Christian writer of all time. Isn't that amazing? Turn with me to Psalm 31. I want to read you something, then we'll get going with our message. Y'all awake this morning? Am I? Okay. Psalm 31. 
In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. It's on page 620 in the Thompson chain. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible, so if you just open your Bible to the middle, you'll find it. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. All these words, deliver, rescue, save. In America, when we talk about I was saved or the Lord will save, we're talking about a religious experience, a belief that God will rescue us somehow spiritually. It's funny that the men who wrote these were talking about very real temporal circumstances. Lord, there's an army out here that wants to kill me, and I'm just trying to do what you want me to do. I need you to rescue me. I need you to deliver me. When the Bible speaks of saved, it's a whole lot more than a warm, fuzzy experience at an altar. It means that you are literally delivered. But there's a different picture in the Bible of delivered than we think of. If I say Judah will be delivered from trouble, first thought that might cross Judah's mind is, wow, I won't have any trouble. That's not at all how the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it as being delivered by God leading you right through the middle of it and sustaining you. So you can expect your life as a Christian to be surrounded by trouble. You can expect that. It's going to happen. It's what we do in that trouble that defines whether or not we're Christian. And I want to confess right up front, sometimes I get this right, sometimes I get it really wrong. God is willing to grant you mercy. He's willing to grant you grace. This is credit, if you will, those of you that understand the credit business. When you don't have what it takes, He will grant you what you need to get there as long as your heart's right. He's just looking for the intent. That's what he's looking for. You find out he's a lot more merciful. When somebody wrongs you, first thing you want to do is burn them, Lord. Burn them, Lord. <laughs> In fact, James and John said that. These guys were called sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder. They were brawler-type men. And they get to a town that doesn't receive the message, and they said, Lord, can we call down fire on them? They had seen a prior, heard of a prophet who did this named Elijah under totally different circumstances. Jesus looked them right in the eye and said, you don't know what spirit you're of when you say that. We serve a God who desires all men to be saved. He was willing to let His Son be hurt so that you might be saved. Why is it that we think He wouldn't allow us to endure some difficulties that others might be saved? But you have to examine your motives. You can't jump off of a ship into frozen waters and say, oh, well, the Lord told me to do it. I'm just doing this to see if somebody will save me or to save others. You have to hear from God. As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, is what the Bible says. Psalm 31, though. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Never let me be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Sometimes there are traps that are set for you. Sometimes it's the enemy that has set the trap for you. And sometimes you find a way to set your own trap. You ever caused the problem that now ensnares you? <laughs> no, of course not. Nobody can relate to that. It was all my wife's fault, truthfully. You know? Yeah, she's not in here to defend herself. Whether you caused the problem or somebody set it for you is beside the point. We all cry out for help because we can't do this ourselves. And we're calling out to the God of truth to discern, to show us what to do, to help us. This is the heart of a Christian. It's not I'm perfect and I've never been in trouble. It's not 
how dare you oppose me, you're so bad, you're so wrong. It's realizing, Lord, we all get confused in this thing. We're lashing out sometimes because we're hurt and we don't know what to do. And all of us just need to help, need help from God. God's trying to get each person to a place in their life where they'll cry, rescue me. Like that song from the 60s. I'd sing it, but it, it hurt your ears. This psalm reminded me of a story that I've told you before, but I can't help it. I want you to hear it again. There was a little boy who was on a ship in the 1600s, and uh, the ship crashed on the rocks. Everybody in the ship perished except this little boy. He found a rock. It crashed on rocks. So he found a rock, and he clung to it all night long. When he was rescued, they asked him, they said, Son, weren't you moved by the waves? Weren't you scared? And didn't you tremble all night long? I mean, this kid was small. He said, Yes, sir. I trembled and I moved all night long, but the rock did not. There are times in our lives where everything around you seems like shaky sand. You don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. don't know how you're going to feed your kids. don't know who your friends are anymore. But there is a rock that you can stand on. There is a rock found in God's Word, described as God's Word, who's touched our lives in a unique way. It's that rock I want to talk to you about this morning. Let me read to you out of Matthew 5. I'm turn to Matthew 5. We're going to be in verse 43. I want to remind you one more time, then I'm going to leave this alone. When we're talking about these things and opposition and all those things, do not envision a single person. Don't envision a circumstance unique to my life or your life or anybody else's. Remember that Ephesians 6.10 says that we don't wage, that we are not in war against flesh and blood. We're in war against the spiritual powers and principalities in dark places. Have you ever done something that you didn't want to do? That you didn't mean to do? Ever hurt somebody and you didn't mean to? It wouldn't do any good for them to attack you. You didn't even mean to do it. They need to take it up with the prince of this world who is trying to get people to do bad things. Do you understand? So I'm not talking about any person. You all with me on that? Okay. Matthew 5. This is our aim. Do you remember that old uh, Beza said to that French monarch that the church aims to receive blows without striking them? This is our aim. It's Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, you be honest with me. Is there anything that could be harder to do than that? If I walk up and say, David, I hate you, that's hard for me to say. But in this, obviously, we pick David because... There's no way anybody could believe this. But I, I say, you're a, a worthless person who's been stealing from me for years and, you know, I want to hurt you. It's the first reaction in David to go, oh, wow, well, praise God, I love you too. Let me give you a hug. Hey, let's sing songs, skip, and hold hands. That's not the natural reaction. I've just hammered David. David gets to decide whether he's going to be a hammer or an anvil. God promises in His Word that if David will not return evil there but will return love that he'll endure and I won't. That's what he promises. That's a scriptural principle. Does that mean that David doesn't want me to endure? No, it's required of him that he pray for me, that he hope that I get saved, that my life begin to change so that I won't be hammering other people. Well, that's a revolutionary thought. You know, this is not how you build big churches. Jesus began his ministry teaching these things. It's amazing that anybody listened or followed him at all. Would you? You know, if somebody walked up and you never heard something like this and said, hey, Cal, I'm going to smack you right across the face and you need to turn the other side also. I mean, come on. Whoever thought of something like this? And yet, 
The church has been around for 2,000 years and these are the ideals that we hold highest. The problem is, is that the church doesn't often do what Jesus said. Gandhi was somebody who said, you know, I've examined your Christ and Him I like. It's His followers I have a problem with. Most Christians, you slap them across the side of the face and you better duck, buddy, <laughs> because there's something coming back at you. Listen how Jesus explains this. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is hilarious. I mean... It's powerful, but it's also funny. Jesus is telling people to be perfect knowing that you don't have the power to be perfect. This is what the Christian's aim is. Don't go into a situation hoping to hurt somebody because they hurt you. Go into a situation hoping to love them, hoping to pray for them, wish good things on them. You always going to get this right? No, probably not, but that is your aim. Sometimes we get confused in battle and we forget what the Christian aim is supposed to be. The Bible mentions that we wear a helmet of salvation. Sometimes it feels like you're looking right through the ear hole. (laughs) You're confused. You can't see. You've been smacked upside the head so many times you don't know what to do. If you're wounded, you can be dangerous. Christians aren't supposed to be wounded. We're supposed to be healed. That means somebody can stomp on you, but you trust Jesus to heal it. You act healed and you move on. That's how that works. Luke's... Verse 27. It's another verse, and then we'll change topics here. Is this okay with you all this morning that we talk about this? Nobody's mad? Nobody wants to get up and run out? We only had one door, and I'm between you and it. (laughs) I was in church one time, and this sweet young lady got up and was walking to the back, and the preacher, I guess, just wasn't thinking. He said, hey, hey, where are you going? And she turned red, you know. She's going to the bathroom. And he just called her, called her down in front of everybody. Luke 6, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, Do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, you've heard all your life, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? It's the golden rule. Usually quoted out of Matthew, I'm quoting it out of Luke. How often do you hear people quote the preceding verses? Somebody wants something from you, let them have it. Don't don't fight for it, let them have it. Somebody's trying to take from you, let them have it. Why could you do that as a Christian? What would that be the ultimate expression of? I believe God's going to take care of me. Take all you can get, buddy. Hurt me any way that you can hurt me. God's going to take care of me. That's a hard thing to do, though, huh? That's not necessarily what you preach in new believers class, huh? Come all you uh, weary, tired. Y'all come on in here. Jesus will save you. Oh, but by the way, if somebody wants something from you, give it to them. You know, they want you to go a mile, go two with them. Churches don't preach this stuff very often. But if we will live it, we'll be unique among the nations. We'll be unique and people will see and they'll go, wow. You know, five years ago when such and such happened, I can't believe I did that to Cal. And he responded, I've never seen anybody respond like that. You know? That's amazing. It leaves a mark. You don't always see the fruit of it right then, but it plants a seed that grows. It plants a seed. Somebody worked to plant seeds in your life. 
It may have been 10 years ago. It may have been 20 years ago. And you're seeing the fruit of it now. I tried to hurt somebody one time that was preaching to me. But you know what? I never forgot the look in their eyes. And when I went to sleep, each night, I thought about it. Each night. It never left me. It planted a seed there. Now, that person never had the option to see, the opportunity to see, that God would even make me into a preacher one day. The last time he saw me, I was trying to hurt him. But he advanced the kingdom that day. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. There are two aims of a Christian. One is to be perfect, be like God, love people. The other is to show mercy. It means when you recognize injustice, when you recognize something that's wrong, you don't rush out to condemn somebody because you realize that there's been lots of wrong, lots of injustice in your own life and you were shown mercy. If God forgives you all your debts, you can't go choke somebody that owes you a debt, can you? No, not unless you want to get thrown out of the kingdom. I know these words are hard to put into practice, but you have reason to trust them. I want you to consider some facts about the Bible. And again, I don't do this very often, but I just want to read you these. Sometimes when I am on shaky ground, I cling to that rock. When I feel insecure about the world around me, I start revisiting why I've placed my trust in the words that come from this book. So I want to read you just a little bit about the book. I got most of this from the book Signature of God and some of it from a friend that's a pastor. The Bible is unique in its continuity. You know what continuity is? You're an electrician. I know you do. It was written over a span of almost 1,600 years by more than 40 authors from every walk of life. Kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. Moses was a political leader trained in Egyptian universities. Peter, a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Luke, a doctor. Daniel, a prime minister. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. And Paul, a Jewish rabbi and lawyer. The Bible was written in different places. Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah in the dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul inside prison walls. John in exile on the Isle of Patmos. The authors wrote during different moods. Heights of joy and others from the depths of sorrow and despair. They wrote it on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and in at least three languages, Hebrew, the language of the Jews, Aramaic, the common language of the Near East until Alexander the Great, and then in Greek, the business language of the world at the time of Christ. The Bible's unique in its circulation. I want you to think about these numbers for a moment. The Bible's been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. The United States Bible Society in 1997 reports shows that 71,500,000 Bibles and books of the Bible were distributed around the world. 71 million Bibles were being distributed around the world in 1997. Think about that. What other book did you say that about? That's 8,162 copies per hour. 
195,890 copies every day and night. Added to this are 490 million selections from the Bible. In other words, that 71 million figure, that's how many whole complete Bibles are out there. But there's another 490 million that are partials. Some countries, they have to handwrite books and pass them from underground church to underground church because it's still illegal in their country to own a Bible. And yet, it persists. The Bible's still around. The Bible is unique in its translation. The Bible was one of the first major books translated. It's been translated, retranslated, and paraphrased more than any other book in existence. The Encyclopedia of Britannica says, by 1966, the whole Bible has appeared in 240 languages and dialects. One or more whole books of the Bible in 739 additional languages. 3,000 Bible translators were at work between 1950 and 1960 alone. Y'all, that's amazing. What other book could you say that about? What other books impacted people's lives through so many centuries in so many ways? The Bible, like its people, is unique in its survival. The Bible, like its people, is unique in its survival through history. It was written on material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. You got that? There are more manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of the Bible, than any ten classical works of literature combined. Jews preserved it as no other writing. They have special classes of men in their culture whose sole duty it was to preserve and transmit these writings in perfect fidelity. They kept the letters, syllables, and words to ensure freedom from error. The Bible is unique in its survival through persecution. It has been burned, banned, and outlawed from the emperor Nero right up to the present day. You realize the Bible is still illegal in countries today? It was illegal when it was being written in the country it was being written in, and it's still illegal in countries of the world today. Up until 1869, it was still illegal in Italy to own a Bible in any language other than Latin. Illegal. And yet it's been more circulated than any book on the planet, more translated than any book on the planet, more widely read than any book on the planet. Its pages burn with the truth, yet glow with the light of the sublime. The Bible stands as a rock undaunted by the raging storms of time. Voltaire, the noted French infidel, who died in 1778, said that in 100 years, Christianity would be swept from existence. That's a quote he made in writing. God, showing his sense of humor, elected to have the Geneva Bible Society use Voltaire's own printing press and house to produce and distribute Bibles less than 50 years after he made that statement. Man stands up as the enlightened thinker of his day and says Christianity is so old, archaic, arcane that it will not exist on this planet in 100 years. And God used that man's house, his own tools, that location, where he said that, to print and produce Bibles within 50 years of the man's lifetime. The Bible's unique in its teaching. The teaching of prophecy is unique. Wilbur Smith, who compiled a personal library of 25,000 volumes, concluded, The Bible is the only volume ever produced by man or a group of men 
in which is to be found a large body of prophecies relating to individual nations, to Israel, to all the peoples of the earth, to certain cities, and to the Messiah. Muslims cannot point to any prophecy of Muhammad coming hundreds of years before his birth. The historical accuracy of the Bible is unique. The table of nations in Genesis 10 is astonishingly accurate. The way personalities are shown is honest. The true characters of the heroes of the Bible are revealed. The Bible is unique in its influence on surrounding literature. If every Bible in any city of reasonable size were destroyed, the Bible could be restored in all of its essential parts from the quotations on the shelves of the public library found in Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, lexicons, and atlases. If you were able to destroy every single Bible in existence, you could put one back together just by other people who have quoted the Bible in a public library. That's amazing, isn't it? What a unique book. The Bible is unique in its historical accuracy. There is more proof of the accuracy of the New Testament than any secular writing of that time. There is in existence today, you'll hear the contrary to this. That's why I'm reading you these things. In existence today, there are 5,300 copies of the Greek New Testament from that time period. Altogether, there is in existence today 24,000 manuscript copies of at least portions of the New Testament that date from the New Testament era. No other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers. In comparison, the Iliad by Homer, which is second to the Bible as far as the number of copies, the Bible having 24,000. Anybody have any idea how many copies there were of the Iliad, the greatest Greek classical literature of all time? About 600. About 600. And yet we're going to say that that's accurate and the Bible's doubtful. It's interesting. The biggest thing that makes the Bible unique is its effect on individuals' lives. In 1993, my life changed in a dramatic way that nobody could have foreseen, nobody expected, and some people still don't believe. When contemplating the truth of the Bible, I shook my fist in the air mad at God because of something somebody said to me. And because of His Word, because of a relationship that I was being drawn into with Him, I heard His voice. This made me unique on the planet. Not unique in that there's nobody else that's done that. All of you are here because of some drawing from God. But unique because out of all the people on the earth, God selected us. Somebody who would stand up for His Word. Somebody who would try to do what's right. Somebody who's aware that you don't get it right all the time, but willing to aim for perfection. didn't say you'd hit it. He said aim for it. I want to read to you out of Hebrews. I received some encouraging phone calls this week. One of them was from my mother. That's always a good place to get encouragement. Nobody else loves you in the world. Your mom usually does. My mother tells me, she's not told anybody else this, and I'm saying it out here publicly, but my mother tells me that in 1975, on January 27th at 1.50 a.m. when I was born, that she heard with her ears, God say, this one will belong to me. And that at that time, the only thing that had ever happened to her like that had happened if she had been under the influence of some substance. She was scared to tell anybody because she hadn't been drugged in any way. She looked around to see if the doctors heard it, but nobody reacted. She got to thinking about the situation she was in, wondering if they had given her drugs that made her hear that. 
But it was an emergency. I was born almost three months early, so they had not given her any drugs. She treasured that in her heart. She didn't tell me that until about a year ago. But she said several times in her life she would show up at a Bible study or be at the post office or somewhere, not having been in church in decades. Okay, we're, we're, My mom's not claiming to be Mother Teresa here. Not that that's what we aim for either, but you follow me. She said people would stop her on the street sometimes and say, hey, that three-year-old baby, God's going to do something with him. She thought they were crazy. She thought something was wrong with them. Just like you would think that if you had not experienced spirit-filled Christianity and realized that God does things like that. It was good to hear that. You know why? Because just like David said, what, oh man, what is man, O oh God, that you're mindful of him? What makes you consider his ways? I began to contemplate this week that God had called me uniquely just like He called Diana uniquely and Mandy uniquely and Matthew uniquely and Patricia uniquely. He's looking, the Bible says, for those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And you know what is required of you if you're selected and you decide to follow Jesus? Whatever He tells you to do. To endure whatever He tells you to do. Today we're going to read Hebrews 11 and I'm going to close. You'll be so happy, huh? Message will be over. Hebrews 11, why am I reading that? Because these are men of faith that were uniquely selected by God and they endured hardship beyond description for the greatness of the kingdom of the glory of God. It'll make your trouble seem small. It'll make whatever you've endured for Christ seem small and it will teach you in the process. Are you all in Hebrews 11? I'm not. (laughs) I'm behind the times, my friend. Let's see. Hebrews 11... If you're in a Thompson chain, that's on page 1338. Y'all going to have to forgive me for reading to you so much this morning. I'm sorry about that. I usually just preach. This morning I thought it would be better to read something to you a little bit because I was scared what might come out of my mouth. (laughs) There's still more Eric in me than I would like there to be. And sometimes I mean well, but there's just no telling what may happen. In fact, that's probably what's got me in the trouble I'm in. I met a kid when I was in seventh grade who had been stabbed. And he looked at me and I said, Hey, what happened to you, man? You know, I'd never seen these kind of bandages. He said, I spoke up when I should have shut up. (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Guys, this is the most quoted Scripture among charismatic Christians and the least understood. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we... Do not see. So you don't see a way out. So you don't see how God will deliver you. So you don't see. Well, that's what makes it faith. The harder it is, the more faith it requires. Praise God. We say we possess it for salvation. You've got to possess it for daily living. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understood or understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. I want you to get this real quick. I didn't plan to tell you this. Abel, he did something by faith in his lifetime. You know what? That's all you know about Abel. That's all you remember about Abel. That Abel offered a good sacrifice and his brother killed him for it. Sometimes faith comes at a high price. Others don't understand. They'll walk on you. They'll step on you. They'll try to hurt you even if you're trying to help them. 
You know, the most dangerous thing you can do as a lifeguard is try to save somebody who's drowning. You know why? They often drown you while you're trying to help them out. You know? And it's not even that they misunderstand your intentions. It's just that they can't stop that natural instinct to survive. A dangerous thing among lost people is that instinct to survive. They don't even understand when you're trying to help them. They'll drown you if they can. But does that mean you don't help? God's called you to a life that says, forgive me for being crass, to hell with the consequence. I will do what God says to do. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so they did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Friends, underline this verse in your Bible if it's not underlined. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You want to be pleasing to God? He doesn't require you to climb steps with little hooks in your flesh and weights bouncing like the Hindus. He doesn't require you to sit in a lotus position like the Buddhist for hours upon end trying to achieve nirvana. He doesn't require you to fly planes into buildings like some radical Muslims. You know what He requires you to do? By faith, earnestly seek Him. Believe what His Word says even if you can't see that it's true. Believe it. Not trust that's based on nothing. It's trust that's been verified. That's why I read you all the facts about the Bible. Many other people put their trust in the Bible and look at the fruit. It's still here. That's amazing. It's amazing. The most widely read book in the world. Remember this too. Next time you see somebody write a check, I love to point this out to Muslim friends, Hindu friends, whoever you can. If you put a date on it, you're testifying to the day that Jesus was born because we number our years from the date of His birth. Every nation in the world is doing that now because they're using American calendars for business. They're all testifying in some way to the day Jesus was born. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. I used to tell my wife that we were going to get a single wide. She said, I'm not going to be your trailer chick. We're not doing that. I'd remind her, Abraham, the father of our faith, lived in tents. Now, praise God, he spared us. We didn't have to live in a place that my wife didn't want to live. But that's not required of God. He didn't promise you riches like the preachers say on TV. He promised you a rich spiritual life that he would prosper you in every way if you'd be obedient. That may or may not include finances. He promises he'll take care of you. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. There's another one worth underlining. Why was Abraham honored? Why is Abraham, even by the three major religions of the world, the Muslims honor Abraham, the Jews honor Abraham, and Christians honor Abraham. And why? Why does the Bible say he's to be honored? Because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Whatever God has promised you in your life, whatever the Word says about you, you need to consider God faithful who made the promise. You've not been faithful to Him, but He will be faithful to His Word. Paul told that to Timothy. 
And so from this one man, and he is good and dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. In other words, they didn't fit quite in. Why? Because they had a different goal, a different motivation, a different worldview than everybody else on the planet. That made them unique. What motivates us is different than what motivates everybody else so they don't understand. You do something because you love somebody and you believe it's the right thing to do and all they can attach to it is the motivation of greed or gain because that's the only motivations that move them or hate or fear of loss or some other motivation. They don't understand and that's okay. You're supposed to be a peculiar person. Somebody that makes others kind of scratch their head and wonder. Doesn't mean they'll all understand. Jesus never hurt anybody, never did anything wrong and think about the things they said about Him. He's a drunkard. He's demon-possessed. He's cursed by God. And ultimately, did they pat him on the back for all that he did? No, they killed him. Did that mean that he wanted to burn them all and that they were horrible people? No, not at all. He said, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And we're called to be like him. If, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have been given the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared a city for them. There are people in this world that will not walk by faith. They've created a religion of their own, a system of beliefs of their own that is anti-God. And God would be ashamed to share the kingdom with them. I don't say that. The Bible does. If He's not ashamed of these who by faith walk after Him, then He is ashamed of the others. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through your offspring that Isaac, your offspring Isaac, will be reckoned. I'm Isaac, that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. I want to talk to you about this for a minute especially you guys, especially me, especially those of us that have seen a calling and you're excited about it. There are times in your life where the very thing that God has told you to do, you're now in a position that looks contrary to it. In other words, this is called the death of a vision. He's told you to be a preacher and yet you are a used car salesman. Could there be anything further? Maybe a lawyer, right? <laughs> no, no, no. He's told you that you're going to be in ministry and yet you're laying tile floors or something. And you have to reason in your heart that God is able to take your dreams out of the ashes and bring them back to life. You have to reason that He who made the promise to you is faithful. God had told Abraham that He would create nations through him and now the only child that had come from his body, God had told him to kill. How could you be obedient to that? He reasoned in his heart, well, if God's going to strike him dead, God must be going to raise him up because God promised me something and He'll be faithful to it. doesn't matter what position you're in today. doesn't matter how dire it looks. God can take your dreams right out of the ashes and make them beautiful. He's that kind of God. You just have to trust Him and consider Him faithful. 
By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. I'm not going to have time to explain all of this to you because I want to read the whole chapter. But leaning on the top of your staff while worshiping, you know what that is? Your staff contained records of your life. Just like somebody might put a notch in their belt or might measure a kid by the doorpost, his height every year. A shepherd inscribed on his staff important dates, important things in his life that God had brought him through. This man worshipped God leaning on the testimony that God had given him and blessed his son's future. I long to do that in my kid's life. One day when I'm an old man about to depart from this earth, be able to tell them I was in trouble and God delivered me. And then I was in trouble again and God delivered me. And then I was in trouble again and God delivered me. And you know what, son? Whatever happens to you, He'll come through for you to too. Then prophesy about His future. He did that in faith. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about his exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. That's another message. We'll just move on. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. There are times that what is before you as a Christian is a very clear choice. What is easy in the way of the world and what is hard with the people of God. You have to take your stand and make it somewhere. I don't want to quote country songs in here, but Randy Travis, I think, sang the song, you have to take a stand for something or you fall for anything. Right, Randy Travis? There are times in your life where you get to decide whether you stay in the palace where there's comfort or you have to step out with the people of God. That's a different choice for everybody at every time. But if you will not stand when Jesus tells you to with men, especially in a church setting, don't you think that you'll do it at the end of days? It doesn't work that way. You know, if you are not willing to have people speak of you evil now, what would happen if your life were on the line? The men who wrote this book gave their lives for the gospel and would not give up Jesus under threat of death. How important is it that people think well of you? You want that, but what's most important is that God thinks well of you. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing... I want you to hear this. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing... What's it say? The king's anger. Your decisions in life cannot be based on other people's reactions. We are not risk assessors. You do what your king says, not what you're scared the reaction will be. Your decisions cannot be based on other people's anger. It just can't be. Otherwise, they are your lord, their owner, their controller. People, because we worship in a garage and because we're different, we don't have a steeple and stained glass, are inclined to call us a cult. I know that. And if somebody makes a decision in this church, it's always attributed in some way to me. That's been going on since 1993. <laughs> you know, as if uh, Matthew has no mind of his own. I can assure you, Matthew's a stronger person than I am in many regards. I don't tell him what to do. He makes up his own mind. But when people don't make their decisions based on someone else's anger, 
there's an inclination to go, oh, well, they must be doing it because somebody else made them. can't be that way. You guys have one Lord, one owner, one controller. That's Jesus Himself. You can submit to nobody else. That means if your parents think you should do something different than what God tells you to do, you say, Mom, Dad, I love you. I'm sorry. If your brother thinks you should do something different, it, it doesn't matter who it is. You be led by God's Spirit. I've done that. I've done that and sometimes i failed. Sometimes I, I have not been strong enough to do it. But the times of blessing in my life are when every person that I knew said, don't do that, don't do that, but I believe God said do it, and I did it anyway. It's better to stand with God alone than with a multitude and not be with God. Better vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. How do you see something that's invisible? You can't. But what was faith? Being certain of what you cannot see. So how does that work? Moses was sure of God's will, as if he saw it before him. So he acted like he could see it, even though he couldn't. The only way anybody in the Old Testament saw Jesus or saw anything like Jesus was through the ministry of shadow and type, the events in their life that taught them about Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. Never. Not at any time. Not even in the paintings. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed cracker Jesus. Never seen Him. Or the fishing lure Jesus hanging on some people's crosses. Never seen Him. And yet I know that I know that I know He's real, He's present, and He's in this room. Some things I do, He loves. Other things, He wants to spank me for. Okay? I'm doing my best to get it right. But I'm certain as if I could see Him right before me that He's here. By faith He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. I, I have to pause at this. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground, but when the Egyptians tried, what happened? They were drowned. Both going through the same thing. One survives and one drowns. I want you to understand something. Faith will cause you to wade out into the waters of trouble in life. And God will cause you in that trouble to walk as if you were on dry ground. But when an Egyptian, somebody not called by God, wades out into the troubles in their life, they drown. Because all they have is their own arm to save them. If their bank account is not big enough, if their friends and the prestige they have is not enough, then they drown. You and I are not clinging to such things. We're clinging to what God says. And He will make it dry ground in the middle of a sea so that you can cross it if you have to. But when an Egyptian enters the same trouble, they drowned. Now why would God do that? Is that because He's trying to be harsh? He's looking for those that will cry out to be rescued. We don't serve the God that wants you to kill the Egyptian. We don't serve the God that wants you to watch while they drown. We serve the kind of God that wants you to help. They want you to pray for them. They want you to set the example by walking through the same trouble they're in as if you were on dry ground. You understand what I'm saying? We don't gloat if our enemies fall. We pray for them. We hope that they would be just as we are. That's the heart of a Christian. The world shouldn't think that Christians are mean and judgmental and condescending. They're not supposed to be. That's not Christian. It's Christian to love, to want to help to care for those who are struggling, even if they're hurting you in their struggle. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Some people have a real problem with the fact that Rahab was a prostitute. I want you to understand something. All of you were unfaithful to God at one time in your life. All of you were unfaithful, and the Bible speaks of you as if you spiritually were a prostitute. And yet, He loved you anyway. It went to something that was greatly polluted and made you clean. What an awesome thing. Do you know any guy that would do that? Go find the dirtiest prostitute that he could find? Say, that's the one I want to marry? God realized exactly what we were when He found us. And He's cleaned us. That makes you be able to look at any situation that is out there with any other person. Not be judgmental about them because you know what you were when you were called. What you were doesn't mean you still act like that. You better be in the process of being changed. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, whose weakness was turned to... We spent our whole lives trying to show everybody how tough we are. Gene, you remember me when I was a kid? I spent my whole life trying to show everybody how tough I was. I had a 32-inch waist and, you know, (laughs) more muscles than I have today because I was trying to show everybody how tough I was. The Bible requires you to glory in your weakness so that God can make it strength. These people did this not through their strength. They were stripped and barefooted before the Lord. They did it through God's strength working in them and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. That doesn't mean you think you're better than everybody else. It means that your behavior shows that the world's not worthy of you. You ever been in a situation you've seen somebody be extremely loving and faithful to somebody who doesn't deserve it and you might say, wow, they're not worthy of that? None of us are worthy of the behavior Jesus has shown towards us. Now our job is to go do the exact same thing to show love, to show mercy, to show kindness to those that aren't worthy of it. The way you get to do that is by being in places that are difficult where most people would crack and display the love of God. What a high calling. What an awesome opportunity. But how few will choose to do that. They wandered in deserts, deserts, mountains and caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Read you one more line. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, in light of the way that men of God have always responded to this message, in light of the way that the Bible has survived through the ages in its, all of its uniqueness, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and run just like they did, letting our weakness be turned to strength, considering Him who made the promise faithful, even if it looks like your vision has died, counting on God to raise it from the dead. If you do these things, it will show that the world's not worthy of you. But some in your lives will be changed. I promise. I've never worked at a single job site where somebody didn't get born again. Never. Or at least renew their walk or however we say that. I left, left in my wake people who love the Lord. That makes anything that you endure worth it. These are what we set our eyes on. I encourage you to take up that same idea to be willing to do that same thing because this is what makes us Christians. You need to love those who don't deserve love because you didn't deserve it. You need to be kind to those that nobody else will be kind to. You need to go sit by the guy on the bus that nobody else will sit by. You need to do that because that's what Jesus would do. He didn't go to the palaces. He didn't go to the religious places. He found his friends among whores and tax collectors, the dregs of society. Are we too good to love the same kind of people that Jesus would? Are we too good to return good for evil? Jesus did it. You say you want to be like Him when you wear the name Christian. It means Christ-like. It's time for us to do it. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.